Welcome to FASD Family Life, the show for families by families, where we discuss parenting children and teens with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. I'm your host, Robbie Seal, FASD educator, advocate, and mom of four children with FASD. I know the struggle is real, but so is success. I hope that sharing my experiences can help you feel that you're not alone and that there is hope for you and your child with FASD. Here we are, my friends, episode 13 of FASD Family Life, the podcast for families by families, where we get real about raising children and youth with FASD. I am so happy you could join me. I hope you can settle in with a nice hot cup of tea, sit back and listen. This is going to be a fantastic episode today. I will be answering your questions about transition trouble. Why it's so difficult and some ways we might build bridges of support to enable our children to cross over. I hope you had a chance to listen to my last episode, Talk to the Experts, with Matthew Pekosdi, a 41-year-old with FASD, living and working in beautiful Victoria, British Columbia. Matthew reminded us that daily support and accommodations are needed because fetal alcohol spectrum disorder isn't just a kid thing. No, FASD is a lifelong developmental disability. But Matthew assured us that the struggle is real and so is success. If you are a parent, caregiver, or grandparent raising a young person with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, then I'll bet you've experienced meltdowns when things don't go as planned. Like me, you may have a lot of trouble trying to get little Johnny from the TV to the dinner table or to bath time. I'm sure you've felt the temperature in your home rise as you try to get your child or children with FASD from your home, through the door and into the mommy van, on your way to soccer practice, daily school run, or even the trip to grandma and grandpa's house. Remember those good old pre-COVID days when we used to be able to visit our family? Maybe you've received another phone call from your child's teacher who is frustrated when your little darling resists putting her math sheet away when her teacher says it's time to begin social studies. Oh, transitions, aren't they fun? Today I'm going to answer some questions that I've received about transitions, why they are so challenging for individuals with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, and what we can do as parents to support our kids through the inevitable changes that we all encounter in life. I've been thinking about transitions a lot lately, and it occurred to me that there are many different kinds of transitions, some trivial and some of tremendous significance. But what all transitions have in common is a leaving of one place, literally or metaphorically, and moving into another, shifting from one mode of being to another mode of being. And when we consider the multiple injuries to the brain caused by prenatal alcohol exposure, we can begin to understand the difficulty and discomfort our children experience when they are confronted by an unexpected change or thrust into a new environment. You see, transitions require forethought, planning, utilizing different skills, flexible thinking, accessing new resources, sequencing, acclimatizing to a new environment, meeting new expectations, effective communication, ceasing one mode of being and willingly walking through all these steps to engage in a different mode of being, stopping one activity and starting another. Whether that mode of being may be playing Fortnite and then being asked, asked to stop and transition to dinner time, 
where it's waking up in bed and transitioning from that warm, comfortable place into the cool bedroom air. And then to transition from that room and make your way down to the kitchen for breakfast. Or is it transitioning from the familiar and supported environment of grade school to the unfamiliar environment of high school where the teachers and the environment are unknown and the expectations of independence and competence are elevated? It may seem to us that transitions from one activity to another is a simple task, but transitions are actually a series of many tasks, which for a person with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder create anxiety, fear, and extreme discomfort because their brains are not able to execute the mental gymnastics required, and especially not if we are in a hurry. Transitions are challenging for children, youth, and adults with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder due to the impairments to the very region of the brain required to facilitate complex thinking processes, including delayed gratification, sequencing, following instructions, working memory, flexible thinking, physical movement, initiative, ceasing an incomplete task, and immediately begin something else predicting outcomes, emotional regulation, abstract thinking. These are some of the components of executive function. Executive function is significantly impacted by prenatal alcohol exposure and early trauma. I like how Diane Malbin explains the damage caused by prenatal alcohol exposure in her book, Trying Differently Rather Than Harder. She writes, Alcohol is a very small molecule that passes freely into the placenta and fetus when consumed during pregnancy. Alcohol eliminates some cells, changes the migration of cells, reduces the number of neuronal pathways or connection between the cells. It alters the neurochemistry and reduces the myelination of axons, among other things. In some cases, entire portions of the brain may be affected. Different structural and functional changes reflect which part of the brain was developing during the time of alcohol exposure. End quote. That is no small thing. We cannot say, I know my child has FASD, but he should be able to fill in the blank. No, a child or youth with FASD has suffered a catastrophic brain injury that impedes normal brain function, especially in areas of complex reasoning and executive function. Matthew Pekosdi illustrated this point perfectly in my last episode when he discussed the support he requires to adapt to new situations like grocery shopping during the COVID-19 pandemic. Matthew had learned the skills to shop for his groceries, but when faced with changes to environment, he felt destabilized and he needed increased support. My conversation with Matthew illuminated the daily struggles he experienced with transitions that cause him confusion, which leads to frustration, overwhelm, and outbursts. This confusion that Matthew and our children experience is a result of the primary disability of the brain damage caused by alcohol. The frustration, overwhelm, and outbursts are a response to the poor fit, and these are the secondary disabilities. Diane Melbin says in the same book, the shift in thinking provided by understanding the difference between primary and secondary behaviors and the role of brain in behaviors sets the stage for trying differently rather than harder. A common observation by parents and professionals is that the harder they try to change behaviors, the worse the behaviors become. 
When behaviors are used as cues, as symptoms of the disability, a different focus for intervention is identified, end quote. So what's a parent or grandparent or teacher to do? Well, thankfully, there is much we can do to enable our children and youth with FASD to navigate the choppy waters of transitions. I think the first thing we can do is remember brain, not behavior. This paradigm shift in our thinking helps us take a step back from the volatility of a situation. We quit taking it personally and remind ourselves that our kids are having a hard time, not giving us a hard time. Because our children and youth with FASD have difficulty navigating all the steps necessary to complete a transition, we can be patient. We can acknowledge their discomfort with an empathetic statement like, I see you're having a hard time. What do you need? Keep it short and simple. Any more will likely capsize their already tipsy boat. This is where the predictable structure in our family life creates something like an exterior scaffolding of support, like we might see in a building that is under construction. The structure that we erect for our children give them predictable concrete information as to what we are doing and that we are there to lead the way. Our children are under construction too. We are helping them build life skills, social skills, communication skills, and thinking skills so they will become better equipped to handle transitions. I think I shared a story once before, but I think it bears repeating. Years ago, when my three teens were little ones, I regularly walked them to a playground nearby. Without clear expectations spoken in advance and leadership from me, they ran amok, squabbling and competing all the way to the playground every time we went. It wasn't the fun family outing I hoped it would be. Instead, everyone was frustrated and angry with each other. When I brought structure to the situation by stating my expectations of behaviors as we were leaving the house and praising the desired behaviors of each child on the way to the playground, the chaos was quelled and we enjoyed our family time together. What I understand now that I didn't back then was that my young children had FASD and therefore they lacked the social skills and empathy required to share, to take turns, and accept that someone could actually walk in ahead of them without the world coming to an end. At that time, I'd never heard of dismaturity, but with hindsight, I can see that they were developmentally half their chronological age. And that's why my twins could not meet the behavioral expectations of a typical six-year-old. They were closer to three, and my three-year-old son more like an 18-month-old. Which explains why I felt like I was wrangling a troop of chimpanzees most of the time. Another way to anchor your child's rocky boat midst the choppy waters of transitions is to have routines in place. If structure is the what, routines are the how. Dr. Nathan Ori says it this way, Routines are doing the same thing, the same way, every single time, end quote. And I can attest to the power of routines to stabilize your children and your home, even in those periods when life becomes more challenging. Routines make life predictable, even when you're facing a crisis or something as simple as mama has a migraine. Routines keep us all floating along until we're strong again. Going back to my story of walking my children to the playground, the structure was the stated behavioral expectations, my leadership, and the praise I gave my children for meeting the stated expectations. I tried really hard to catch them being good and praise them before they had a chance to argue or compete with one another. 
the routine was the how we walked to the park with my three rowdy chimpanzees. We walked the same route every single time. The children took turns leading every single time, and we had concrete boundaries for the turns. For example, one child would lead for 10 sidewalk blocks, then we would all stop. I would praise everyone for their good listening and waiting for each other. Then the next child in the predetermined schedule would lead for the next 10 sidewalk blocks. And once we arrived at the playground, everyone was free to explore the equipment and play in the sand. Whenever we went to the playground, we did the same thing, the same way, every single time. And those routines set up clear boundaries and enabled my children to have fun while they practiced life skills of listening, taking turns, delaying gratification, leading, and following. They also learned a safe, predictable pattern of going to and from the park that could be transferred to a babysitter or a respite provider who, if they maintained the routine, would be able to enjoy a fun outing with these three adorable little kids. These same principles can be applied to many daily transitions in our life. Things like having a structure and a routine in place to assist your child build the life skills of going to bed. Effective communication is also vital for our children who may have language processing delays, slow auditory pace, slow cognitive processing, perseverative tendencies, that means they get stuck in an idea or stuck in a behavior, difficulty prioritizing, difficulty sequencing, poor working memory, and a developmental level of someone half their age. So effective communication with an individual with FASD must first ensure that they are engaged with us. And then we must use concrete language that is concise, direct, and calm. Saying a child's name does not guarantee that they will engage with you, especially if their back is to you and they are engrossed in something that interests them. I can't tell you the number of times I've called my daughter by name and she not even hear me if I'm only 30 centimeters or one foot away from her. I learned that I had to have eye contact in order to have her tune in to me. Instructions need to be given in single steps and we need to allow additional time for cognitive processing because the prenatal alcohol exposure kills the brain cells, eliminates some neurons, disrupted the migration of cells and the myelination of axons. A brain prenatally exposed to alcohol must work much harder to receive, process and execute a single instruction. An impaired working memory means that a person is unable to hold information in the queue for later use. And that's why a person with FASD cannot hold on to a three-step instruction and why they get so frustrated and angry with us when we ask them to do something that their brains do not have the ability to do. We can facilitate multi-step instructions without the auditory and cognitive overwhelm by posting a visual aid. For children who are unable to read, this would be a sequence of tasks, like getting ready for school in the morning in a picture format. Sometimes it's called a storyboard. Older kids love graphic novels, so it may work to design a morning routine list like a graphic novel or a comic strip for them. You and I use visual reminders when we write a note to ourselves on a post-it note and put it by the door, or we hang a key rack beside the entry door. Oh yeah, a visual reminder, I put my keys here. Visual aids can be used in the bathroom, too, to remind a young person of the steps to taking a shower. Do you have kids who fight with you every day about having a shower? I think most of us do, and if I ever figure that one out, you'll be the first to know. 
but one of the challenges may be that there are so many steps to having a shower. I counted 18, 21 if we add conditioner on your hair. Let me list them for you. Bring a towel into the bathroom. Turn on the water. Adjust to the right temperature. Step into the shower. Get water all over you, including your hair. Step back from the water. Put one squirt of shampoo in your hand. Rub the shampoo all over your hair to make lots of bubbles. Stand under the water. Rub all the bubbles out of your hair. Step back from the water. Put one squirt of body wash into your hand. Rub hands together. Rub soapy hands all over your body, from your armpits to between your legs, all over your toes. Step into the water to wash all the soap off your body, from your head to your toes and everywhere in between. Turn off the water. Use your towel to dry off. Step out of the shower. That's 18 steps. Now there are big transitions too. One listener wrote to me about the trouble they were having with their adopted son's increased anxiety, which was manifesting in fearful, clingy behavior and increased dysregulation. Dysregulation means the inability to maintain one's emotions and often be right on the edge of rage or right on the edge of meltdowns. That's dysregulation. This mom went on to explain that their family was preparing for a move to another state. She was concerned that her son was dysregulated most of the time and on the verge of having a meltdown or a rage, which was overwhelming for everyone in the house. Now, these are hard seasons for our families, but we have to remember brain, not behavior, and that our kids are having a really hard time. They're scared. They cannot fully understand what it means to move house, change schools, move to a new city, in a new state, make new friends, and still have their family, their toys, and all their precious things. And if a child is in foster care or has been adopted, they are terrified that the move the family is making will not include them. Babies who have been removed from their biological mothers have suffered a disrupted attachment that they cannot articulate at that time or later on in their lives, but they are terrified that this disruption, this new disruption, will mean profound loss again. When we consider the impact of trauma and prenatal alcohol exposure, we can understand that children, young people, and adults with FASD will need our empathy, our patience, and our support to navigate the big transitions in life. I think of it as building a bridge of support that covers over the gaps of skills and developmental levels while utilizing the individual's strengths to enable them to cross over and make a safe, healthy transition. FASD is a lifelong brain and body disability, so our children, no matter their age, will always require assistance to successfully and confidently navigate transitions. Independence is not our goal. Rather, a healthy interdependence that includes structure, routine, and supervision to assist our children to live safe, meaningful, and healthy lives with bridges of support to cover over the gaps in development, memory, sequencing, anxiety, problem-solving, language skills, money and time concepts, cognitive pace, and flexibility. As was so well illustrated in my last episode by my guest Matthew, a 41-year-old with FASD living semi-independently. A common question I hear is, why do my kids explode like a bomb when I say no? I think we've all been there. One listener wrote this about her daughter. If she even senses 
a hint of reluctance from her parents instead of an instant yes, she assumes the answer is going to be no and she acts as though it's going to be no forever. She'll never ever be able to do what it is she wants to do. And you can hardly tell her otherwise. And this is hardly ever the case. However, she's been reacting like this for years and she's almost seven. Also, she's destroying something that's really important to her when she gets mad, like a beautiful picture she drew or a note she worked really hard on. Or she gets so upset that the bubbles accidentally knocked over and she's upset about it, but she decides to dump out the rest. Well, dear listeners, I bet you're sitting there nodding your heads. I think we've all been here with our kids. I know I have about a million times by now, but it does get easier. We know by now that prenatal alcohol exposure damages the developing brain in many complex ways, including the capacity to have flexible thinking, to delay gratification, anticipate outcomes like that spilled bubble bottle, and to take the perspective of another, to name a few. These are the very skills required to calmly accept a disappointment especially when one's brain is keyed up and expecting a yes, of course you can. An occupational therapist I work with added some terrific insight for me when she said that the pleasure center of the brain gets activated when we ask for something we want. We can feel the pleasure center of our brains kick in and kick into overdrive at the mention of a chocolate bar or ice cream or going golfing or out to dinner with friends. Imagine asking for the object of our desire and being denied. Ah, it feels so abrupt and and unkind. It takes a fair bit of self-control, flexible thinking, and empathy for the other person in order for us to manage our disappointment and maintain relationship when our request is denied. Children and youth with FASD do not inherently have these skills to manage disappointment due to the nature of their brain injury. However, we can teach these skills. Of course, we have to say no to our children, but we can find creative and subtle ways to say no that ease our children into that adjustment. We might say, yes, you can play basketball after you take out the trash. I also like to give myself the gift of time by saying, let me think about that before I give an answer, even if the answer is going to be yes. I think it's teaching life skills of waiting for an answer as well as the skill of taking time to think before giving an answer. Creating a pause in the action also helps bring down the anticipation a little and it gives me the time I need to craft a subtle answer. How about yes when statements? They can be really helpful too as they help us meet two goals, ours and the child's. For example, yes, you can watch 20 minutes of TV when you have finished your shower. When we have to say no, it can be really helpful to state the disappointment before we say no. For example, calmly say, I know you're not going to like this, but no, you can't play on the Xbox. Then don't say any more. Just stay quiet and calm. No apology, no rationale. You can even walk away if the situation permits. I hope these ideas help you navigate the minefields with your children. I've walked these same fields and I know the struggle is real. And so is success. And if your children destroy things when they're angry, you have a few options. You can let that happen if it's something of little consequence, like a picture they have drawn. You might be able to use this as a learning opportunity when they're calm. 
though I haven't had much luck with this, I find talking about something that happened when my kids were angry will likely spark a new upset. Another option is to redirect the child to channel the energy elsewhere. So you may be able to give her some cardboard to tear apart instead of her drawing or a note that she wrote. And during a calm time together, you might be able to practice deep breathing and shoulder shrugs to release energy when she's feeling frustrated or disappointed or angry. Another option is prevention. Prevention of the angry outburst is ideal, but it's not always possible. But we can prevent special things from being destroyed by removing them from the environment. You may opt to keep photographs, special books, or mementos out of your child's room so that they will not be destroyed during a time of dysregulation. Prevention is setting up a situation so that it is much harder for your kids to fail than it is to succeed. Raising children and youth with FASD is not for the faint of heart. We love our kids, but love only takes us so far. We all need training, coaching, respite, grief support, and friends who get it so that we can keep going, serving our kids the best we can. We need each other. Our kids' success will depend on our ability to be there for them with a brain-based approach for their whole lives. Believe me, little kids, little problems, big kids, big problems. I encourage you to find your tribe. Connect with others who are parenting in the same sphere, whether that be adoption, foster care, grandparent parenting, biological parents raising children and youth with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. You need friends who get it. And keep listening to this podcast for encouragement, tips, or even as a cautionary tale as to what might be coming next. I'm here for you. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you for staying with me in this 13th episode of FASD Family Life. I'd love to hear from you. Please let me know if you found this episode helpful and hopeful. Email the show at fasdfamilylife at gmail.com or message me on Facebook. Take a second to leave a five-star rating and a review because that does some magic with the algorithms and helps others find FASD Family Life, a podcast for families by families where we get real about raising children and youth with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. I encourage you to share the podcast with your friends, family, your social worker, grandparents so that we can all learn and grow in our understanding of fetal alcohol spectrum disorder and as always i'd love to hear from you what's your biggest struggle email the show at fasdfamilylife at gmail.com i'll do my best to address it via email and on the show so we can all learn and grow we're all in this together Thank you for sharing your time with me. I know it's precious. And until next week, remember, the struggle is real, but so is success. I'll talk with you soon.